myself in front of a microphone and do the podcast. It has been hectic recently, folks, hence the reason why there has been such a gap. So, this podcast is going to be two months' worth. Yes, you are going to have a bumper edition of the podcast. We're going to have all sorts, including one or two audio boos that I recorded in Norfolk back in June and July, starting with this. A little audio taste of Sheringham Beach there. Combination of the waves coming in and the pebbles being dragged out as the water recedes. So it's quite loud. Um, I'm down in Norfolk just for a couple of weeks. I'm taking some colour images down here and having a bit of a break. Sort of a holiday and a bit of work as well. Uh, Which, quite honestly... I've been looking forward to. It's been quite a... uh, Not an easy year, to say the least. I didn't really have very much of a holiday last year with working on the film uh, in Whitby. So it's nice to recharge the old batteries. I'm working in colour this year. I'm not doing very much in the way of black and white work. But I might shoot the odd roll here and there if the mood takes me. So expect a few more audio boos from me. Hopefully somewhere a bit quieter next time. That was recorded using my uh, iPhone and the audio boo app. Um, great little mobile podcasting uh, application that I find quite useful um, every now and again. I don't actually use it as much as I should do, really. But then again, you have to have something to say, don't you? So that's probably the the reason. And I must admit, it's actually one of the reasons why I got an iPhone. Um, I wanted to use Audio Boo. I could see the 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 benefits of using it, and that was that was one such benefit: just capturing the sounds and what I'm up to and things like that. And I hope to do some more in the future, but. At the moment, my iPhone is a bit sick. It needs to go off and be repaired, sadly. Okay, news. Um, well, probably the main bit of news came in July. Uh, June was a matter of wrapping things up before I went away to Norfolk. July the 1st was the start date for my solo photo book month project. Uh, I do this every year. Um, I have been doing it... This is the third one I've done, so the first one I think was 2009. Uh, I enjoy doing them. The idea is, is you have 31 days to, to shoot 35 pictures and you put together a PDF photography book. It sounds easy and depending on how hard you make the project, it can be you know, easy or difficult or... That's one of the things I actually like about it. You you are in control. You are judge and jury. If you want to cheat a little bit, you can do. If you don't, then, you know, you can uh, be quite strict with yourself. And it's a good learning process. You You learn how to use text and you can put a photography book. And it's great because at the end of it, you've got this book that you've made. And I think the last time I had a look, 71 people had had a look at it. Uh, you know, when 
you consider you know how many people actually do solo photo book month that's not bad there's about 180 books i think registered to be completed this year not all of them will be but uh, a good part of that number will be completed uh, and it's great you can like i say you can take your time with it so you know solo photo book month uh the web link is in the linked section of my main website sofobomo.org and i would recommend that you sign up for next year currently at the moment it's i think it's nearly at its end i think it finishes on the 31st of august they have two months and you can pick the time that you want to start within that two month period and you have 31 days from the time that you start so i had from the 1st of july to the 31st of july i actually managed to get mine finished on the 19th i was quite impressed i used an iphone again was I completely happy with doing that? No, I wasn't. I had other plans, but, you know, this is how things work out. I needed to shoot something. I wanted to complete a book. I was using an iPhone at the end of uh, June, during the first week that I was uh, away down in Norfolk, and I took some really good pictures with it, and I thought I might as well continue this project shoot some more photos, do the book, and then I've completed that. That's out of the way, and then when I get back home, all I have to do is just design the book from these photos. I've got it finished, I can upload it, and then I can get on with doing the work and various different bits and pieces that I have to do this time of year. It is you know, a busy period for me, so it, it worked out quite well that way. Uh, was I pleased with the book? Yes, I was. It worked out well. There were black and white shots. They were taken using Hipstamatic. You'll be hearing a bit more about that a bit later. To do with uh, one or two discussions that have been going around these last couple of months. Uh, there's even discussions now about the use of Hipstamatic by photojournalists. I'll be talking about that a bit later. But uh, I found it a good way of taking street photography. Um, a phone has many many advantages over a regular camera yes it's not a proper camera a real camera i've heard all of the terms but it doesn't attract the attention and you can work really really quickly and that has certain benefits when you're doing things like street photography the project that i uh, eventually ended up doing was called uh i've got to make make sure i get this in the right order sea sky sand and street think I got that right. I keep on getting it wrong every now and again. But anyway, if you have a look on the on the blog, uh, just type in Solo Photo Book Month into the search engine. You will on my blog. You'll come up with the the, the list, and you'll be able to have a look at the book if you haven't already. Um, but really, the name of the book, which was probably actually the hardest thing um, to work out, really sort of signified the various different elements that were in the pictures there were still live photos on the beach the the sand and how the tide had moved uh the sand about and things there were pictures on the street of course there were skyscapes because you know what i'm like you know when there's uh, black and white um image making and skies i always tend to take a few and you know and then there was uh, the sea of course which is one of the important elements of the norfolk landscape so I managed to put this book together 
you know within about 19 days so that shows you how if you are motivated you can get the bulk of the photography done within 10 days that gives you a good period of time to get the book designed you don't need any flash software just open office uh, you know that's open source as they call it openoffice.org have a look there that will do all of the book designing that you, you need to do. I use one or two other different bits and pieces, but uh, OpenOffice is something that I find pretty good to stick a book together quickly. Um, but yes, it was a good, good project this year. Definitely the best of the three that I've done. It's going to be a tough one to beat, but I think I've got an idea of what I'm going to do next year, but it's going to be at completely the opposite end of the spectrum to this year. I'm not going to be using an iPhone, that is definitely for certain. I am going to be using something that uh, is going to be really, really tough to... It's got to be timed perfectly, this... this. Um, I'll give you a few hints. 5-4 Highlands landscape and that's all I will say for the moment it's gonna have to be worked out really really well I'm gonna have to actually do some sort of feasibility can't even say it feasibility study um, to see whether it will be possible to do it in the 31 days remember I need 35 pictures so that's 35 shots done with a 5-4 that's pretty tricky right this next audio boo coming up is about being on an empty beach for another audio boo from norfolk and i'm on the beach uh, stitching through the salt marshes again so so uh, I can uh, either go and buy a tripod or do without I think I'm going to do without to be honest the weather's absolutely superb anyway I don't think you need it the light's fantastic and it looks as though it's going to be a pretty decent date regardless so I don't think I'll bother buying another tripod quite yet I do actually need another one I need uh, a decent studio one This morning I was in Walsingham, and that is a pilgrimage place for Christians. There's uh, some fantastic little churches there. There's Mission Orthodox as well with uh, all of the other denominations. And Mission Orthodox is especially fantastic. It's a really beautiful, beautiful little church. But it's just amazing how many people still go on pilgrimages. still quite a lot of people who want to go to Walsingham and do their bit. There was about four different groups there when I was there, just having a wander about. And they were uh, <coughs> praying and singing rather badly, I might add. Uh, generally, they were just saying, what are you doing? 
in a pilgrimage which I imagine this is worse for the lot of people. Obviously, they do get quite a lot of people going there because uh, in the last couple of years they've had a pilgrimage centre built and extended. Um, so they obviously still get quite a lot of people going, which I find remarkable in this day and age. Not really because I'm anti-religious, but just because, like I say, you can't think of pilgrims as something from so I'm going to make my way back to the car. It's absolutely fabulous here. You can hear yourself think for once. You can recharge the old batteries. I will make my way back to the car now and back to the world. I did make it back to the world. The car park wasn't that far away. It was only about a mile. It was just difficult terrain to get over because it was quite muddy. Where Stiff Key Marsh is, it's very, very flat. And when the sea comes in, it goes right the way over the marsh, right up to where, nearly where the car park is. Uh, literally, if you were at high tide, the car park, you'd be able to walk out of your car and go down and have a bit of a paddle. So it does cover quite a distance, and that makes the terrain very muddy, very wet. So you've got to be careful when you're you're coming back. There's also little streams and things that you've got to jump over. The, a lot of the time there's no way of getting over them other than jumping. Not that easy when you're carrying a couple of cameras, especially if one of them's a big medium format camera. That brilliantly links. Do you see that link there? Uh, brilliantly links me on to what I was using when I was there. Well, I took all of the gear that I usually take, 35mm digital, medium format in various different sizes, and I just ended up using the 6.6 medium format. Uh, I think I had a bit of a plan that I was going to do that anyway. I did take a few digital shots, but not that many, probably about 50 only, which, you know, when you think I was down there 18 days, is not that much. I decided to use colour film this year, uh, and I was doing that mainly because I wanted to try and get away from the black and white photography that I've done down there. Oh, I would imagine it's probably about be about eight, nine years now. A lot of it is on my website. I've still got some of it somewhere lying around to be processed, which I'm aiming to catch up on all of my processing. The amount of black and white film I've got, folks, is just unbelievable. It's just a stupid amount. But I, I definitely want to. Uh, I definitely wanted to try and get away from that black and white. Decided to shoot color six six, and I, I, I just shot that. So it was quite unusual this year. Usually I take a lot of thirty five millimeter stuff, and I shoot a lot on digital, but not this year. Right here comes the next audio boo, and this was recorded in the car, and this is about photography books I found. Well, I think this is probably going to be my last boo in Norfolk. I head back home in a couple of days. Uh, this is just a quick one, just to mention a couple of photography books that I managed to pick up. Uh, the first is Richard Fitzgerald and Vanishing Island, which is uh, a book from about 1986. It's got some fantastic black and white and colour working, dating from the early 70s right through to about 1985. That cost me £10, uh, was in a second-hand bookshop uh, in the travel section ironically um 
it wasn't in the photography section where you would expect to to find it. It was uh, somewhere else. So it it just goes to show that it pays to have a look around in these bookshops in the various different sections. I know that Waterstones do that as well. I've seen Steve McCurry's work in the travel section and not in the photography section. Um, the second book I got was uh, Waters of Cumbria, which uh, is a series of landscapes uh, by David Herod. That's another fantastic book as well. I found that in, I think that's a new book. I could be wrong. It might be second hand. But it's in very good condition anyway. But it, it's, well, it's just a similar type of photography to what, I I do similar sort of landscape photography, and uh, I'm just keeping an eye on um, photography of Cumbria because next year I'm hoping to go with a five four camera. Um, I don't know exactly when. Hopefully, maybe about April May time, something like that, so I can get a bit of study in and uh, see what's been taken try and uh, produce some cracking work myself next year but the Vanishing Island one is, is fantastic, it's a book that I read a review of about 20 years ago over 20 years ago, it'll be about 1987 now, so it'll be 24 years ago um, and I was just flicking through the book and suddenly saw three images that I remembered from this magazine review and instantly I just thought, ah yes, I remember this so it goes to show how photographs, really good photographs, can um, get embedded in your mind and stay there and you can bring them um, back later, you can remember them. Um, I must admit, the Vanishing Island one, I'm really pleased with. I'm pleased with both of them. Um, most of the photography books that were in uh, the bookshops were quite honestly you know, more technically based. Um, so, you know, to be able to find something like Vanishing Island, which I imagine probably isn't that easy to get hold of these days, especially for what I paid for it, is quite quite a find. And I do like finds. I've still yet to beat, though, Don McCullen's homecoming book for a pound on a car boot sale stall. That is the one that I've got to beat. Don McCullen for a pound. What a bargain. Absolutely. I found that book for a pound in a car boot sale just literally about a hundred yards away from where I live. Uh, it was in a box with some other photography books as well. Most of them photojournalism related. There was one or two that were to do with contemporary photography and post-war American photography. A fascinating catch. Uh, I ended up coming away with about four or five books, I think. Um, but the Don McCullen was the icing on the cake. It was a fascinating um, period uh, that this book covered, not only from the point of view of the subject matter, but also the photographer itself. Uh, Don McCullen called the book Homecoming because he'd come back from photographing all of these wars. He'd, he'd spent a long time uh, photographing other people's wars, other people's countries under social uh, torment and he decided that he wanted to sort of explore this country and he ended up focusing in on the poverty side. M McCullen himself actually came from 
a very poor background. He was brought up in the East End and his father was asthmatic. Uh, and I think he, he was attracted like, you know, a moth to a flame by the fact that this poverty, this um, equality was still going on. Um, in fact, whenever you hear him talking now, he still, you know, goes on about his background and where he came from and how photography was able to lift him out of where he was. And uh, he he uses that photography in the book to show, you know, this is the 1970s and this is what is happening in this country. This is where I call home. And look how some of these people are living. Some of them were tramps in the East End, you know, who were drinking all sorts of strange concoctions, meths and things. Basically, you know, they were deeply troubled people. Some people were people, you know, who lived in a house but just didn't have that much money because the, the economy was not particularly great where they were living. He's uh, he's always been a great people person, Don McCullen. I've always liked liked him for that. He've he's always interested in his subjects. There's an awful lot of photographers now that I don't know. You, uh, they're almost is parasitic a bit too strong a word, but they don't seem to bond very well with their subjects. And I think that's essential if you're trying to tell someone's story. And McCullen was great telling someone's story through a photograph even if it was just a portrait right we're on to the web links section we're going to have a nice big section of web links here because we've got two months to get through and I think we'll start with one that's sort of connected really to McCullen's work that I've just been talking about Miners, Mothers and Mill Girls this is a telegraph uh, gallery that was on a few weeks ago. I tweeted about this and I think I even wrote a blog about it just before I went down to Norfolk but the, the pictures I'm going to mention here again because I haven't done uh, a link section on the podcast for two months. These are taken by John Bulmer. Uh, they were on display. Sadly they're no longer on display at the gallery that's mentioned here. Um, but they... Oh, yes, sir, they are moving to the Chris Beatles Art Gallery in London. And that's from October the 4th to the 22nd. This link really does show you the difference between what a colour photograph can do and a black and white documentary. McCullen, when he went up to the north, photographing black and white. John Bulmer used colour a lot, even in the 1960s. He was a bit of a pioneer that way. He's got a great website, which I will also link in the podcast link area. The photographs are a broad concoction of all sorts of uh, areas, people. There's some right up in the, the north, round... Durham, there's some in Manchester, there's some, uh, I think, in Stoke-on-Trent, places like that. So some of them are actually old haunts of mine, which is maybe the reason why I like them. But it also shows uh, a sort of uh, an England that's gone, a Britain that's gone, because a lot of the people were working in industry, and by the late 1970s, the early 1980s, a lot of this industry had gone. 
it had disappeared. So maybe Bulmer spotted some of the social and economic changes that were, were coming along the, the road. It was a very, very painful period for a lot of these areas that Bulmer worked in, the Midlands and the North East. A very, very painful period. It took about 20 or 25 years to adjust in some cases. In fact, in some cases, there are places, there are towns like Comsut, which is in County Durham, and they are only just starting to turn the corner they lost a steel mill there and as soon as the mill went as soon as the plant went that was it uh, the main employer had gone and it's taken them you know several decades to reach a point where they're getting over the fact that this this has happened and of course this is not just something that happens in the UK it happens all around the world it's happened in America it's happened you know in Europe but Bulmer's pictures just sort of capture the English way of life before all of these traumatic changes started to come through. Fantastic piece of work. I would certainly recommend that you have a look at it. Okay, this next link is a bit contentious. You'll either love these photos or you will probably be pretty critical of them. It's the war in Hipstamatic. This was on the foreign policy magazine website they've done a collection of five uh, galleries five photo stories I, I think one of them they don't use the iPhone app but four of them certainly do the results are pretty interesting I think I actually like some of the photos but there has been a lot of activity a lot of criticism on Twitter and Facebook and various other different photography blogs about the value of this work and whether this work should be uh, done using an iPhone. There's been words like real camera used, uh, image purity, quite strong stuff. Now what I see as meaning image purity is truth that old saying of the camera never lies well of course it does cameras do lie and this idea that a photojournalist um, can take pure images or nearly pure images I think is is quite a worrying way of thinking because all photojournalists manipulate their photos of course they do they're photographers what do I mean by manipulation I don't mean particularly sticking them through Photoshop what I'm talking about is you know the way that they look at a subject the way that they photograph it it can come down to the camera that you use it can come down to the lens that you use it can come down to the fact whether you shoot it in color or black and white why do you sh shoot it in black and white it can come down to the lighting. It can come down to the way that you focus on the subject. There are, you can make a list of the various different small manipulations that all add together to make a photograph. Why do I think that Foreign Policy magazine has decided to run with these iPhone pictures? Well, for the last 10 years, we've been seeing pretty much the same sort of pictures coming out. Um, the Big Picture, which is a very good photography blog, just type in The Big Picture, uh, Boston Globe, and you'll come up with the website, 
have a monthly gallery of pictures from Afghanistan. The August one has just come out. They have some fantastic images. But the problem that I have with a lot of photojournalism is is that often you will get four or five photojournalists turning up and taking virtually the same sort of photographs. I mean, I, the amount of pictures that are out there already of photographers who have been embedded with the US Marines is quite considerable. What I think these iPhone photos do is they give a completely different look, a different aesthetic look to the war. And I think that is what someone has come across and said, hey, these are slightly different, this is a slightly different approach, we'll go with these. I don't think it's a threat to the regular photojournalism. But what I would say is that I don't think these photographs are any less valuable as photojournalistic images than their digital counterparts that are shot with a digital SLR, probably a very expensive one. Basically, uh, in fact, I could probably argue that the iPhone, those images are exactly the same in the camera, i.e. on the iPhone, as they are on the screen when you're looking at them when the foreign policy of... How many of those photojournalism images have been put through Photoshop that have been shot with a digital SLR? Probably a lot of them. You know, they'll, they'll make sure that the contrast is just right. There's various different little tweaks. If you were talking about image purity, you wouldn't touch those images at all. They would be just as they were shot on the camera of the subject. And of course, the vast majority of photographers do post-production on their work. They have to. There's colour shifts. They can be little things that they might want to do with the contrast. Just boost it slightly, maybe sharpen it a bit. Now, that's tweaking around. And like I say, that goes hand in hand with all of the other manipulation aspects of focus camera that you use, the camera angle that you take the subject at, the lens choice, if you use a wide angle, telephoto, the way that the perspective is, oh, you name it, there, it's, it's there. And I don't think that's taken into consideration with uh, photojournalism. So have a look at those iPhone photos and see what you think. I think they're bloody good images. A lot of people don't they don't like the aesthetic, they think that it's too in your face. Well, the only thing I would say is that the iPhone aesthetic is more noticeable than a regularly uh, shot photojournalistic image. I just think that's a difference. Other than that, the other thing is, you're a photojournalist, you're out in the field, you've got an iPhone, you've got your digital SLR, suddenly your digital SLR packs up, you've got a story. Are you honestly not going to shoot that story when you've got a camera on your iPhone? You could get away with it these days. And if the stories about the, the next generation of iPhone are right, about being, you know, 8 megapixels, something like that, you could more than easily get away with shooting something on that. Yeah, you'd be restricted, but you would still be able to get away with it. Things are changing. The iPhone will never replace a digital SLR, but it can complement it. So just look at these images with a bit of an open mind, and who knows? You know, you might come to appreciate them like uh, 
a lot of photographers do. An interesting note just to take into consideration is is just in the last couple of days someone has produced a set of images taken um, at the 9-11 uh, memorial and they've taken them using a Holger camera uh, a Lomo camera something like that which gives a similar sort of style of photo to what Hipstamatic does it's going to be interesting to see whether because a film camera was used it's going to be interesting to see whether the same sort of criticism is going to be applied to those images because a proper film camera has been used rather than a mobile phone. I get the feeling that there won't be as much criticism because it takes film and it's a proper camera and everything and it's not a mobile phone. I don't know. There's all sorts of ways of taking photos folks. You don't just take them with a digital SLR in the next couple of uh, months I'm going to be buying a new digital SLR and a 5.4 camera. I love taking photos with Hipstamatic, I love taking photographs with digital cameras and with 5.4 cameras. Just take it with what you want people. Oh dear that was a bit ranty wasn't it? Uh, I must admit I do get a bit annoyed about that. I don't like camera snobbery that much and I think that's really what at the heart of that argument. Speaking of different cameras this next link is sort of really I don't know it, it's it proves my point a bit how it's interesting to use different camera formats and see what you get this next one is modern Victorian photography and this is a set of photographers uh, not that far away from me actually up near Saltburn which is hmm, about 40 minutes away from me and they've decided that they're going to use cameras and the processes, the, the wet plate collodion, uh, I'm reading this out because I can't remember it all, the wet plate collodion method. And the results that they're getting are quite remarkable because they have a Victorian look, but of course they're modern pictures. A brilliant gallery, check it out. This is what it's all about. It, it's Photography is about experimentation partially. It's about trying new things and seeing what, what you can get. Uh, I really, really respect these guys. Wet plate collodion uh, photography is not easy. It's certainly not easy compared with its modern day counterpart. Just check these images out and see what you think. I think they're absolutely terrific. And it's quite weird, like I say, the way that they have a Victorian look, that Victorian aesthetic. Uh, they sort of remind me a bit of the Matthew Brady pictures, but instead of having Civil War, if you can imagine a whole lot of Brits by the seaside. Um, the portraits are quite nice as well. This is, there's uh, quite an interesting selection of... of photography there from portraiture to landscapes and all sorts of things have a look right that was on the telegraph this next one is on the bbc there's a really good photography blog on the bbc i will give the the link to that and put it in the usual place on the darker skies website the post i'm going to link to is ernst Hass, master of color a really good post about how Hass used to use his colour shots 
in quite uh, a brilliant way for the time. We've got to remember that colour didn't really take off until the 70s and 80s when it, it sort of came down in price. There was plenty of materials out there, but really a lot of people worked in black and white, certainly up until you know the, the late 1960s. Certainly in the UK they did anyway, probably earlier than that elsewhere, places like the United States. And of course now most people take colour images. The, the amount of people who take black and white are I suppose what you would call professionals and the die-hard enthusiasts. But have a look at that. It's got some terrific work on it. I'm going through these pretty quick because I don't want this to end up being about an hour-long podcast and I've got plenty of links to make up for the fact that I'm a bit late with this podcast. This next link is an absolute cracker. It's Gordon Parks. He was a photographer, filmmaker... And a breaker of colour barriers. He he did a lot to show the lives of people across the communities and things uh, during his time. He spent a year, a one-year fellowship as a photographer uh, at the Farm Security Administration. So he certainly had a, a pretty good photography education, I would imagine, with uh, one year there. The work is just fantastic. I would certainly recommend that, y that you use the full screen option at the New York Times uh, page gallery uh, because then you'll get the, the best out of the pictures. They're absolutely fantastic. A real, real treat. And I hadn't heard of Gordon Parks before this article, so it, it was fantastic to see a new photographer's work. His work really is is brilliant. And apparently there is a new book um that's just come out which is called fields of Vil vision fields of vision the photographs of gordon parks i'm certainly going to have a look out for it uh published by the library of congress and it has 50 of mr parks farm security administration photos from the library's holding that does remind me the library of congress does have a very good flickr page if you type in library of congress flickr you'll come up with their page. It's got some terrific colour work in there. I think I've mentioned it before on the podcast, but go along there if you're into old photos, especially the 1930s and 40s. There's a lot of colour work on there. I think the, the 1930s and 40s section has about 1,300 photos in there. There's a lot of really, really good stuff there, so check that out. Right, a really short link now because I want to get through these. This is Dan Fung Dennis. And he's made a film um, called Hell and Back Again, which is an examination of life for US troops serving in Afghanistan. And it's been around one or two of the documentary festivals and things. There is a great insight into how he made it on the Guardian website. It's a short three and a half minute film. Brilliant, brilliant little film. Uh, I recommend you have a look at it. There, that's just a short link. So that's Dan Fung Dennis, and it's uh, Helen back again. Like I say, it's interesting to see photojournalists use uh, video, and Dan Fung Dennis is a great example of that. He's done a cracking job. Right, that is it. The rest of the links will go on to the Darker Skies podcast page with all of the links and things there that I've mentioned, and I'll add a few of the others that I didn't have time for. 
I've just had a look at the, the counter and it's coming up to 40 minutes, 40 minutes plus now probably. I want to make sure that this is under 45 minutes because otherwise most people probably won't listen to it. I said it was going to be a bumper edition and it certainly has been a bumper edition. I think I lengthened it out slightly with my rant about hipstamatic uh, iPhone app use in Afghanistan. But, you know, it's one of those subjects that I feel passionate about. So until next time, folks, take care and I will see you this time next month. For more information on these podcasts, go to richardflintphoto.com forward slash podcasts. And for details about the links mentioned in this podcast, go to darker-skies.com forward slash podcast.